Tropical medicine is one of Oxford's great achievements today, but what was its status when you came here in 1974? Well, there were, in the clinical school, it was virtually non-existent. Down in Parks Road in the science area, in the Dunn School, um, there had been and were people working on organisms which had tropical relevance, but um, certainly the clinical end of tropical medicine, I'm afraid, was non-existent. How did you try and interest the, the medical school in tropical medicine when you came here? Well, um, I came to Oxford from Liverpool, um, where of course there was the most one of the first tropical school, and um, uh, I, I was quite um, amazed having become interested in tropical medicine in, in my days uh, serving my national service. Um, I was amazed that there was virtually no connection between the clinical school, uh, medical school, and the tropical school. But um, when I came back to Liverpool after spending time in the States working in the abnormal haemoglobin field, they knew about these interests and asked me to lecture on the subject in the tropical school. They run a, they run a quite a famous course there. And um, purely by chance, uh, the unit I set up in the Liverpool Royal Infirmary, the only space for it, uh, a blood unit, was on the the tropical medicine ward because it was never full. So I shared that ward for several years with the tropical folk and became very attached to the tropical school actually. And um, when I arrived in Oxford, I was a bit astonished to find <laughs> there was nothing. So um, the first thing we did um, was to uh, initiate what we called the tropical day. Uh, when all the students from whatever they were doing in the clinical years dropped the tools for a day and came and um, usually spent the morning listening to uh, lectures from guests um, from outside, particularly from the Liverpool School. Uh, the head of the school, Herbert Gillis, came several for several years and brought some people with him. And then in the afternoon, um, a wonderful character called Jeff Friend, who was the um, chief pathologist at the school, brought some gruesome samples down, bits of snakes and various um, horrible-looking um, mosquitoes and things, in, in a very good demonstration for the students. So that's how um, we started. It was very much a clinical teaching exercise. This um, burgeoning interest in tropical medicine was a, um, a pathway, a career pathway in place for people who wanted to follow in your footsteps and, and work in the tropics? Well, not at the time. In fact, uh, I think in the 70s, um, a young person who wanted to develop a career in tropical medicine would have probably had to, to go through the usual membership of the college exercise and then probably um, just go and work in a tropical school and hope for the best. But there was no career pathway. Well, there still isn't, actually. Not a properly defined one. There's a much better defined way in now. One of your great disciples here, Nick White, was saying when he decided to specialise in tropical medicine, it was a relatively low status. It had a low status standing. How would you say tropical medicine is today in, in Oxford in a medical school? Oh, I, I think it's... Uh, 
very high standing really. It's one of the, probably one of um, its major achievements uh, over recent years and, and still is. Um, curiously, and uh, particularly for, considering it's Oxford, I think they've tended a bit to underplay it and um, really, um, I, but, but the outside world has not been kind of told just how strong it is. And I think the Central University hadn't realised for a long time, although the, I think the most recent Vice-Chancellor got the message. But um, uh, it is certainly one of the major achievements of the school, undoubtedly. Now, it's a long time since malaria has been an indigenous disease. Do you think there's an element of altruism? Very difficult question, that. Um, I certainly sense it in not everybody in the, in the field, but certainly um, I sense it in one or two of the people who've gone into it. It becomes a fascinating kind of professional exercise, uh, both in management and in research, but um, I think underneath that, in one or two of them, there's definitely been a feeling that um, they want to do something for the poorer countries. Tropical medicine has put Oxford University on a global perspective, hasn't it? Because we have people from Oxford Medicine working in Africa, Asia and uh, China. Yeah, and South America to some degree as well. I, I think it's um, now, there are so many other kind of groups in Oxford hidden away who have been working on various aspects relating to uh, public health, health economics, um, bioethics, which have started to have a, a kind of impact in the developing world, yeah. Over 10 million children die in the developing countries every year. Do you find that, as a practicing clinician, do you think you were lucky to have been born in Europe? I've been working for the last 14 years in, in, uh, in Sri Lanka because there's a huge problem there with these inherited uh, blood diseases. and. Um, you do get a feel for the kind of awful and debilitating effect of constant poverty. And um, hello, working is not easy, in, and, and, and it's, in fact it can be enormously frustrating. Um, one still has the feeling that you know, one's just got to carry on, because you do make a little bit of a difference very slowly. You've seen some fall storms in tropical medicine. Do you think now that perhaps there is going to be a malaria vaccine? It's not going to be easy because what the molecular approach to parasitology in general and certainly malariology is, you know, this is the extraordinary kind of cunning of the parasite and the extraordinary way and the numerous ways that can, can flip its genome around. Um, so, um, but there have been one or two really strong candidates now and um, I suspect that what, what we may get is what you might call an attenuating vaccine um, but with that well we'll have to probably have not a vaccine but several different vaccines. Nick will be very cynical about the vaccine I think. I mean th their belief is that these simple public health measures that, that they've done um, will go a very long way actually towards not eradicating malaria but certainly reducing. Well it is coming down of course as you probably know in some parts of Africa 
Um, Vietnam is a good example. I think the vaccine is going to be difficult, like the AIDS vaccine, is going to be an extremely difficult actually. Why are we so bad at eradicating tropical diseases? Well, I think it's purely, uh, not purely, but the major issue, of course, is economics. If you look at the kind of public health facilities and developments. Um, it's very interesting, actually. Um, in a small country like Sri Lanka, the, the, although the British made an awful mess of their departure, the one thing they did do was to leave a remarkably well-organized public health program. So malaria uh, was almost eradicated in Sri Lanka by 1960, in the, soon after the, the, they, they became, they got their independence. And um, when you looked what happened in Sri Lanka compared with other places after the tsunami, all these kind of worries about awful waterborne, it didn't happen. But that was a small country and, and um, I, I don't, because we did not leave anything like that behind in most of Africa, and nor did any other than colonialists. And uh, it's basically pure poverty, actually. I don't think our governments are just throwing money willy-nilly at these uh, things are the right way. I did see that if Cameron gets in, he said the two things they would protect and ring fence were the National Health Service and foreign development. I think there's been a little bit of sensible talk by one or two people, um, um, but, but it's been hard to get through to them the concept of these one very cost-effective way of doing this kind of thing is the kind of programs that they run from here. Because you don't throw the money at the, at the government of these countries, you, you, organ you, you, you organize it on a partnership basis between yourselves and the, de and the developing countries. So there's constant kind of control over the expenditure and that kind of thing. Um, I mean the Gates programs, have, uh, it's been a wonderful kind of gesture, but by focusing on one disease, as far as I can gather in a lot of African countries, that has pulled any available public health services into that one disease with the neglect of the rest. And uh, I don't think they ever thought about this ahead of time. And w was that the right way to just go kind of banging in for one disease like that? The 25th of April is World Malaria Day. Mm -hmm. What do you think Oxford's contribution has been to the understanding of that disease? And can we use the word eradication? Yeah, I think you can. It's been a really several levels. At the kind of clinical and eradication level, um, in terms of malaria control, of course, uh, the groups and Kevin Marsh and his groups in, 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 in uh, Africa um, have been very much involved in the uh, bed net program and, and so, so on, and village control programs. And um, at the clinical level, in terms of management, there's no question, I think, that uh, the very first paper that came out of uh, the unit in uh, Thailand showed that uh, the previous ways of treating children with cerebral malaria, malaria infecting the brain, had been positively harmful. 
and they did uh, a lot of uh, work on the best approach to management of cerebral malaria and very severe malaria. That was really groundbreaking stuff. And then, of course, more recently, um, although um, Nick White and his team didn't kind of um, invent uh, the artemisis in family of drugs, they picked up very early, uh, the, 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 of course they came from China originally, kind of Chinese um, medicine, which um, is, is uh, extremely important to study actually. He saw immediately the importance of this drug at a time when resistance to nearly all the other anti-malarials was becoming almost universal. Uh, but even more important than that, uh, I mean, he did a lot of the trials of, of this drug showing its effectiveness, but I think more important, he, he fought the battle with the World Health Organization to try to insist that please don't use this drug as a single agent because you'll have resistance within a year or two. Use it with other agents. Um, and uh, he, he finally won that battle. I mean, they are seeing resistance at the moment, but nothing to the extent that it would have been. So um, I think both at the um, clinical and preventative level they've done a good job. And then in the more basic level, um, these places probably I mean, one of the major leaders in the field of understanding the interactions of malaria in a, in a kind of evolutionary sense with common uh, inherited diseases. And that taught us a lot about the interactions of malaria with the red blood cell and how, how it works. And currently, um, of course, it's very much involved in, in searching the whole human genome for um, resistance uh, genes to malaria. I think the long-term hope of that work is that by understanding how malaria, uh, how certain genetic disorders protect you against malaria, and in some cases give you 100% protection in some forms of malaria, um, by understanding that mechanism that may direct you towards newer approaches to treating or preventing malaria. There's one beautiful example of that in the uh, common malaria uh, that used to be common in Africa called Vivax malaria. We're finding out what, how Vivax attaches to the red cell and finding that people who don't have that attachment don't get malaria. And that has led to uh, 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 at least two major vaccine candidates for that malaria. So I think all in all, it's, uh, it's a good story right from basic to applied.